You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build for a new world in which all of us can thrive. But how do we get there? How do we build a world many of us have only seen in our dreams? That's where we believe the artists come in. Every week, we feature a different artist holding down one of the most important contributions to our movement to help us imagine a different, more liberated world. This week's feature is Eli Malawan, also known as Sax Religious. Eli is a transgender Asian American performing musician, composer, producer, and educator who was born and raised in the Bay Area. He performs, records, and tours with multiple local projects, including his own playing instruments from flute, clarinet, and iwi or electronic wind instrument to keyboards, electric bass, and voice. Eli's debut album, Elysia Marginata, was written as a self-care love letter during a time of historic anti-trans legislation and escalation of COVID-related anti-Asian violence all over the country. The music is inspired by lo-fi hip-hop, retro video game music, and jazz. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start in your own musical background. What was your introduction to music itself, and what was your trajectory in the early stages of learning to play? Well, I started playing music in middle school, and I was playing clarinet at the time. And I remember hearing the jazz band, and I wanted to play in the jazz band. I just thought it was the coolest thing. This is your middle school's own jazz band. Yeah, Davidson Middle School in Santa Fe, California. And they told me, well, there actually aren't clarinets in jazz band. You're going to have to play the saxophone. And so I had to catch up and learn the saxophone real quick. And the only opening was baritone sax. And so, you know, I'm in sixth grade. I'm like four feet tall. I don't know if you've seen a baritone saxophone. They're four feet tall. Um, <laughs> <It's as big laughs> so it was quite re- ridiculous. I didn't need a neck strap. It just sat on the ground. Um, I couldn't carry it by myself. But I was just <laughs> enamored by jazz. I My teacher gave me a cassette tape of Stolen Moments mm-hmm. from Oliver Nelson's um, Blues and the Abstract Truth. And it was a cassette tape, uh, if you remember those. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I certainly do. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. But I, I wore it out. I, it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. I was um, blown away by it. And I was just like, I knew right away. I was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Well, I want to rewind for one second. You said you had to play, to be in the jazz band at school, you had to play sax and somehow bury sax. And the mm-hmm. principle there was that there is no clarinet in jazz? Well, in the jazz band, um, clarinet is like for a typical 16-piece big band, uh-huh. uh, clarinet is a double. So there's usually five saxophones in the section. But uh, of course there are, they'll, they'll play clarinet. But for the most part, you know, you're playing the saxophone. Has your perspective on clarinet in jazz music changed since then? I mean, I think clarinet's really cool, and it actually has a different range than the saxophone. Mm-hmm. I think it should be uh, played a lot more in jazz. I, You know, there's not a lot of, I don't know, famous jazz clarinetists these days. You know, there's like a Nat Cohen and Eddie Daniels and a few folks that also play the saxophone. Um, right. But it's a great instrument. <laughs> 
So that's a digression. I, I got distracted because no it was such an interesting concept for like making rules about jazz in middle school. Um, <laughs> right. Breaking rules is sometimes an important part of jazz. But uh, absolutely. So that was that was your early part of your trajectory and clearly the beginnings of your love for for jazz music and introduction to jazz music. You said that you knew that you wanted it to be a part of your life forever. What was the what was the little bit older trajectory for you? I don't know if there really is an explanation. It is really strange to have a 10-year-old Asian girl obsessed with jazz, but it's just what happened. <laughs> I just like okay. there was nothing else that was <laughs> like worth my time and I would practice during lunch and I would just get lost in it and suddenly there'd be a knock on the door and I had missed all my classes and it's 8 p.m. and oh my god what are you doing in there <laughs> I I would go home and practice after school it's just like I was obsessed I like couldn't think about anything else I I would go to my mom and and ask for an allowance and then I would go to my dad and I would ask for allowance and I'd go to Amoeba Music and I'd spend it all mm -hmm. on jazz <laughs> yeah I mean I ended up um dropping out of high school I went to my parents and I was like look I don't have enough time to practice uh, I don't want to go to school anymore. And they were like, ah, uh, you can't do that. And I just kind of made my case that like I could, <laughs> I was like, you could drop me off at school. I'm not going to go. Um, <laughs> and so my dad was like, okay, okay, let's figure this out. And uh, got me into independent study so I could still get a high school diploma. But uh, essentially I just practiced all day after that. I did my independent study once a week and I played in several different uh, high school jazz bands and I studied with different teachers and I just, it was the only thing I cared about. So you mentioned that you were a 10 year old Asian girl obsessed with jazz. I'm wondering if we can dive a little bit, a little bit more into that experience. I mean, jazz is a language of black American music. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, yeah, just like, what was your experience coming up? A, a little bit deeper in, in the, I guess, racial experience that you had yourself and also just like how you relate to that as a Black tradition. Yeah, I mean, it, it was complicated. It was confusing. I mean, I think representation is so huge. Like I remember at the same time being in middle school and learning about all the presidents. And I remember like raising my hand and, and saying like, can women be president? And like my teacher, like laughing at me, like, oh, little girl, of course, women can be president. And I'm staring at, you know, a million white men. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, OK, got it. Um, when does that happen? Uh -huh. So, um, you know, same for jazz. I remember thinking, like, am I allowed to play jazz as an Asian person? I've never seen an Asian person play jazz. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've felt like uh, unincluded in, in different parts of my life studying uh, music because, you know, there aren't a lot of Asians in jazz. And for me specifically, like I'm also mixed race. Um, so, you know, it's not like there is a tradition of music that comes from that specifically, or maybe there is, and I, I have to discover it, but, or make it myself. But uh, what I mean to say go. is there was no stereotypes that I could kind of latch onto and go, that's me. Right. right. 
Yeah, you said uh, you hadn't seen any Asian people playing jazz. Who was the first Asian person you saw playing jazz? Like, did that resonate for you? Oh, yeah, it was huge. Um, the first person I saw was a teacher. I was 14, and I was I went to the Stanford Jazz Workshop. And my um, combo teacher, Dave Gregoric, um, is also mixed uh, Asian. And I just, like, you know, was blown away. Like, oh, my God, you exist. And, and you know, it was, it was also mutual. Um, I remember my last day, he said, here's my email address. And go ahead and just email me, you know, once a month for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> and we've kept in touch. We still talk. We still we teach together at Stanford Jazz Workshop. He's been a huge inspiration, mentor. So shifting from student to teacher experience, have you been able to experience and, and convey some of that relationship to other young people, particularly other Asian kids who are, or Asian and mixed race kids who are excited about jazz? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually really funny um, when I'm teaching how those students uh, magically gravitate towards me. Magic. They're yeah. happy to see me. Yeah, because it's like a thing that's not, we don't even talk about. We're not like, hey, I like you. I am also Asian like you are. You know, it's <laughs> it's just, uh, oh, hi, I'm your teacher. Oh my gosh, you're my teacher. Or uh, even when I play in public, I'll notice like people will come up to me. And a lot of times it's other Asian people who are just so excited for some reason to see me playing. We've been talking about, you know, racial identity in relation to your experience as a musician. I want to shift gears a little bit. You're releasing your debut record called Alicia Marginata. We'll talk about the actual music in just a bit, but I wanted to first talk about the album name. I understand it's named in honor of both yourself and also a sea slug. Yeah. Tell me tell me more about that. So, uh, yeah, my birth name is Alicia, E-L-Y-S-I-A. And, you know, I legally changed it six years ago when I started transitioning. But it's a name that I don't see a lot. It's hard to pronounce. But I always say, if you can say Asia, you can say Elysia. Full disclosure, I asked at the beginning of this interview how to pronounce it. <laughs> no worries. No judgments. So it's it's just a unique name. And I just happened to see an article that said Elysia Marginata. And I was like, oh, I, I know this name. What is this about? And it was like a New York Times article about this sea slug that decapitates itself and grows a new body. And as a trans person who's had gender-affirming surgeries, I similarly feel like I have the same brain, the same mind, the same person, but I've grown a new body in some sense. Mm. And it happens to have my birth name, which I just thought the coincidence was so wild. Um, it was just really inspiring. I, I remember like I read the article, I sat down at the piano, and I wrote the first song that's on the album. Wow, a slug with the same first name as you that decapitates <laughs> itself and grows a new body that you can identify. Was that the first time you've ever identified with the slug? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, I look, you know, when I looked it up and I, I saw pictures of it, my favorite color is green. It's like this, you know, insanely bright green sea slug. It's, it looks crazy. And I just kind of love how weird and wacky like nature is. So you said you you walked over to the piano and you started writing the first song on the album. The first song on the album is 
called Elysian Marginata, the same name as this sea slug and your mm. given first name. Um, tell us about that single. Um, that's also one of the two singles that you've released. Yeah, I mean, that song kind of, for me, sets the stage for the rest of the album. It's kind of dark. It's about the slug. There's a moment that kind of sounds like a gunshot that to me feels like the moment that the head is decapitated. The saxophone part is kind of back in the mix. It's not really the melody. It's just kind of part of the ambience. Because this album, for me, is kind of about branching out into this programming Ableton producer world. Because I'm a trained jazz musician, I have a master's degree from CalArts. So my background is traditional jazz. Um, but of course, I'm a child of the 90s. I had a Sega Genesis back in the day. And so like all these sounds really resonate with me. There's just kind of this dark, repeating progression that kind of changes. We change feels. There's kind of like the bridge is like this kind of swing section that ends in these uh, triplet fourths um, that kind of go into the the first section again, but with this new disorienting three against four feel. Anything else you want to add about Elysian Marginata, the song? When I first started reaching out to labels to release this album, the, the label I ended up with, Hot Record Society, I told them, I want to have a music video and I want it to look like a video game. And they were like, I know the guy. So I got introduced to this animator who's just brilliant. His uh, Instagram is at uh, CH4CH with an underscore chach. And so first of all, the video game music video, he's like, got it. Like, uh, but I really like, I told him about the slug. He's like, I really like this slug. I really like the story. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't, I wasn't planning to do a music video for that song, but it just kind of resonated with him so much that we were like, all right, we're doing a second video and it's got to be that song. If you want to animate that slug. <laughs> yeah. So the first video you did then was for a song called Meditation. Right. Tell us about that song. A few of my friends during the pandemic wanted to kind of keep up our composition chops, our production chops. And so we started this project where, you know, at first it was just the three of us. It was me, uh, Salami Rose Joe Lewis, and Chef Lee. And for a week, one of us would be the leader and text everybody a song title. And everybody had to write a song that day with that title. And then at the end of the week, we would listen to everyone's versions. And then the next week, someone else would take over. So we That's did quick at production. least. Yeah. yeah. So we did at least three of these. And the point wasn't to, you know, obsessively finish a completed, ready for record 
track. It was more of like, uh, how fast can you come up with a musical idea? And so Meditation was one of uh, Chef Lee's titles that he sent out, which is why if you if you look at the three of us, you might see some similar titles uh, because mm-hmm. of this project that we did. But Meditation was really just like kind of like daydreaming. It's just like a wacky video game song that has a really crazy lead line that I composed that I'm still struggling to uh, be able to perform live. <laughs> <laughs> on, on which practicing. instrument? Well, originally that's a, it's a iwi line. So iwi is electronic wind instrument by Akai. It's kind it's of like a, a synthesizer version of a saxophone. Yeah, it's, it's a MIDI controller uh, that you can play like saxophone, but mm-hmm. it's a little different, obviously, because it's electronic and um, the keys are like heat censored. Oh. So they're not And keys. it's also somehow powered by your breath. Yep. You blow into it and you can control some of some dynamics and, and different. You can kind of choose what, what the breath sensor engages in the synth. Mm-hmm. So it's just a cool uh, instrument. Um, so there's a lot of iwi all over the album. So I'm looking forward to seeing you attempt to play that line live <laughs> yeah. um, on the iwi. You mentioned the writing process. You like started as this collaborative process with Salami Rose, Joe Lewis, and Chef Lee. These are folks you've also toured the world with. Can you yeah. share a little bit about your music experience in that realm before the pandemic? These are folks that um, you were gigging with all the time and you know we know that the pandemic impacted everyone dramatically and you know touring musicians in a particularly hard way absolutely so i think it was 2019 was kind of a huge year uh for salami rose joe lewis band salami plays solo a lot and had been doing that mostly and in the years before that started hiring a band um, for for bigger shows and so 2019 was like such a huge year she ended up opening for flying lotus on his 2019 national tour and Mm. kind of pulled a a very cool stunt where she was trying to tell them uh brain feeders the label that she had a band they're like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever, uh, play this solo. She's like, I want to I wanna bring the band. And they were kind of not really paying attention. And so we had a show, and she didn't tell us that they didn't know the band was coming, and she didn't tell them that the band was coming. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and, you know, we played, and Flying Lotus was there, and Thundercat was there, and they, they loved it. They were like, oh, my gosh, we love the band. But uh, the tour is already set. We can't fit the band on the tour bus. We don't have space for them. <laughs> So we're like, oh, darn it. <laughs> um, and you so, didn't even, you walked in not knowing this was going to be the dynamic. I had no idea. I, I, <laughs> I just thought it was another show. I was like, oh, cool. Oh, shit. Is that Thundercat? <laughs> 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 oh, this is a brain feeder thing? <laughs> I, I, we didn't know. So well, it was really exciting. You might not know Thundercat is a virtuosic bass player who has his own career, but also has played with kind of the who's who of soul jazz and r&b in the modern world 
Absolutely. And a big influence of, of mine too, personally, I really love his music, but what ended up happening is they flew us out to a few uh, key dates on that tour just because we, we weren't able to actually join the, the full tour. And so I, that was kind of like one of the biggest moments of my career. Um, I haven't played for that many people before. Um, you know, I've been a full-time musician for a long time. I've been playing saxophone for 25 years now, but you know, suddenly we're being flown out to New York. Um, we're, we're supposed to play at the new blue, uh, like the after party for, uh, Flying Lotus show in New York. And I remember I, I was in the hotel. I'm about to leave. I was going to go check out a saxophone store. And I got a call and they're like, how, how soon can you get to the Brooklyn Mirage? I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I can leave now. I, I guess it'll be an hour. And they're like, okay, great. Because um, the show sold out. And uh, so Flylo wants the band. And we're, we're going to open for the show. <laughs> and the Brooklyn... Brooklyn Mirage, uh, it's a capacity of 6,000 people. Um, and it was sold out. So all of a sudden I went from like playing a smaller jazz club (laughs) to like, Oh shit. (laughs) Um, so that was like a big moment for me. And it also like a big learning moment for me too, because at the time Salami was introducing me as my name. Here's Eli Malamon on saxophone. Um, and then introducing other people because they had specified as their uh, handles. You know, this is Chef mm. Lee on bass. Um, and the other members of the band noticed after that show were like, I, I don't know how this is possible, but I got a thousand Instagram followers overnight. Right. And I was like, oh, shit, I really need to get on this. Who's going to remember Eli Malawan? How do you spell that? What was that? <laughs> so that's kind of when I kind of went on. Uh, my my goal was to okay I need a I need a handle and that's kind of where sax religious came from. Um, I wanted it to be related to saxophone um, and something that you could just say and memorize you know remember. And I just thought it was fitting because I'm so uh, freakishly obsessed with the saxophone. <laughs> so our listeners can find you and follow you on social media platforms at sax religious that's s-a-x like a saxophone and religious because you are perhaps a fanatic about it perhaps (laughs) um i wanted to ask you one final question and and this is backtracking a little bit but you've spoken about it in the past in regards to your album that's uh your debut album that you're about to release called alicia marginata part of it you said you wrote in in response to this growth or at least growth that we're seeing in a violence against Asian Americans um, and and also historic anti-trans legislation that's happening around the country. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit about how you uh, integrate that political experience that we have in the world with learning of these, you know, tragic and terrible incidents into a musical form. Yeah, I mean, I think part of being sax religious, music is healing for me. It's in positive ways, an expression, um, but also in just like survival ways uh, as a coping mechanism. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can lose myself in music. I feel like that's kind of what was going on uh, as a kid, too. Like, I was meditating, basically, with this instrument. And, yeah, I mean, I think it was a savior, but also just a response to trauma. So, you know, the, this past few years have been really hard watching all of this kind of unfold. And, you know, I was talking about representation earlier, and I kind of realized, uh, you know, it's kind of strange out of this tragedy of, of COVID and all of these things happening. You know, I ended up moving to my parents' house in Sacramento because I couldn't afford rent in Oakland. And I was so mad. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I was born in the Bay. It's part of my identity. Now I'm in this mm-hmm. other place. But I, I'm in an in-law unit. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever lived alone. You know, like my mess mm-hmm. in the kitchen mm-hmm. is my mess. And not, you know, five other roommates or whatever we have to do in the Bay to live these days. And it's soundproof. I turned it into a music studio and it became this like sanctuary. And I started thinking about my career. And I realized I had never thought about what is my ideal career. I had been hustling so hard to pay rent, you know, teaching over here, uh, playing in like 15 different groups, wedding gigs, stuff I don't necessarily music I don't necessarily like and I wasn't thinking about what do I actually want and I realized because I had faced you know so much racism so much transphobia homophobia um, and pre-transition just sexism um, I wasn't out about being trans because it wasn't safe I have lost opportunities I have been in physical danger And the amount of times I've sat on a gig or at a rehearsal and someone's just shitting on trans people or shitting on queer people, like not even knowing that I am identifying in this way is so hurtful and damaging. So I thought maybe I don't want to play (laughs) in a million groups to pay rent. Maybe I do want to be out about being trans and about, you know, my pride in my Uh, Asian American community, my family, and kind of like unlearning all the racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic things that we're all raised with. The album being named Alicia Marginata is kind of like an outing. Like it's, it's, there's no way about it. This is about being trans. This is about being Asian American Mm -hmm. in a way that like I haven't been able to express when I'm just the side person in a jazz trio or in a wedding band or teaching you know, jazz or whatever. Um, so it's been like a huge healing shift in my career and my focus um, for my mental health and just for representation. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and this has been Resistance in Residence. Our feature this week is Eli Malawan. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Eli's debut album is called Elysia Marginata. You can find it on all platforms and preferably at saxreligious.bandcamp.com. You can follow him on social media platforms at saxreligious. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. 
Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>